Welcome to Lunch with Tech Leaders, where we have engaging conversations about software development and cloud engineering with industry leaders and subject matter experts. These episodes are created by the Great Lakes Tech Leaders, an online community of technology practitioners. Please come join the conversation by visiting gltl.rbn.ai. Again, that's gltl.rbn.ai. Now strap in, because we're deploying to production in three, two, one. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Launch with Tech Leaders. My name is Adam Oberhausen. I'm the director of cloud architecture with Right Brain Networks. Um, had some logistical challenges today with Tom and uh, Joe, so they're not going to be here, but it's just, so it's just me and some guests. And uh, today we're going to be talking about Kubernetes. Uh, what is Kubernetes? How did Kubernetes come to be? What are the key features and benefits of Kubernetes? Um, what are the different components that make up a Kubernetes cluster? We're going to touch on the learning curve for Kubernetes and how to get started. And then we'll round the conversation up with talking about some best practices. Um, so we've got a lot to cover today. So grab your lunch and buckle up. Um, allow me to introduce uh, our subject matter experts today. Uh, with us today, we've got Brendan Feed. Feedy, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. That's all I right. Like, I, as I was saying it, I realized I don't know how to pronounce your last name. <laughs> Welcome, Brendan. Thanks for joining the show. Feel free to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm Brendan, and I've been kind of in the, if you want to call it the DevOps space, for going on, I don't know, about 10 years now uh, to various capacities. And then specifically around Kubernetes, um, I really went deep in that about five years ago where I was working as a platform engineer. So kind of building abstractions on top of Kubernetes and managing installation of it. So yeah, I've had a lot of experience with using it. Definitely have used it wrong, have used it to make things better, worse, indifferent. So yeah, excited to talk about it. Awesome. And uh, we've also got with us today, Matt McLean. Say hi, Matt, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, everybody. Um, my name's Matt McLean. I, uh, I work for Dark Network where they call me the DevOps Engineer Supreme, and that really means there's only just one DevOps engineer at the company, so there you go. Um, and uh, one of the first things we did was we migrated from uh, ECS to EKS, so implemented Kubernetes at Doc Network and uh, have been really going in that, uh, in that route for a year. Um, now, that wasn't my first time getting into Kubernetes, of course. I, I started there at, in LlamaSoft, where I was spinning up Kubernetes clusters with Terraform and, and all of that so we could run load testing clusters and such. So um, I've been playing around with Kubernetes for several years, uh, but at Doc Network, we've been, we've been running our, all of our infrastructure on Kates for, for a little over a year now. Awesome. Yep. Well, thanks, guys, for joining us. Um, I usually like to start the the show with a little bit of history on the topic. So um, if you guys have any, can fill in the gaps on anything I'm about to say or correct me if I'm wrong anywhere. Uh, but from what I researched for this show is um, in the early 2000s, Google, Google developed an internal container management system, which they called Borg. And... Um, you know, they were at the time Google was struggling to to manage their rapidly 
growing infrastructure, you know, right? Early 2000s, Google's blowing up. So uh, they developed what they called Borg to, to provide a more efficient, scalable way to manage containerized workloads. Um, it used a distributed architecture with centralized control plane and a fleet of node workers, and it allowed them to manage containerized workloads at scale. Um, and then in 2014, uh, Google uh, developed what is now known as Kubernetes as an open source project. Um, what I'm not clear on is if Kubernetes is, um, from what I saw, is like Kubernetes is heavily influenced by Borg, but there's a lot of differences there. It's not like they just took Borg and made it open source. They, it's like a whole new thing. And then um, pretty much like Borg, Kubernetes was designed to provide a platform for managing containerized workloads. Um, and then in 2015, Google donated the Kubernetes project to the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. And uh, I mean, ever since then, it just seems like it's blown up. Like it's it's the, it seems like it's the most popular container orchestration tool out there. You you can't stop hearing about it. Um, it it's been in the market for uh, eight years now, and it, it just seems like the popularity is growing and growing. What I did find interesting was that um, Google uses both Kubernetes and Borg internally, so they didn't like you know uh, retool everything to use Kubernetes. Um, so the two systems have some strengths and weaknesses. I don't know a lot of the details there, but it sounds like um, Borg is still used extensively at Google for managing many of its internal services. Um, and it's a very mature system, battle-tested, you know, all, all those things. And then, But Kubernetes has also become an important part of Google's internal infrastructure with like newer projects and anything that they're doing in the cloud. Um, deployed to the cloud, Kubernetes is seen as more flexible and modular than Borg. So I don't know if you guys have looked into yeah. it, but does that kind of add up? Anything to add or any, yeah. any holes there I missed? Well, and actually, I I believe that uh, Google has actually moved on from Borg to Omega is like the, the newer thing that they have. But when they created Kubernetes, which is exactly what you were saying at the end there, uh, they wanted to have something that was more adaptable to common use cases, not, you know, Google specific, like they didn't want you to have to assume that you had exactly their infrastructure. So there are a lot of th decisions they made, you know, around Kubernetes to make it more generally applicable. So, mm -hmm. so th that would be kind of the, the key thing is, you know, Kubernetes was meant to solve more problems than just those specific to, to Google. And so it, and from what I understand, it was just, you know, complete rewrite you know it wasn't like you know forking the repo and and mm -hmm. tweaking it it was just no we're, we're going to take these conceptual themes and just write something from scratch yeah it's really fascinating to me like i'd wonder like the strategy behind it is fascinating to me i'd really like to know like why they did it you know it seems like it's like it's super popular platform right now um one of the questions i have for you guys is what were people doing before Kubernetes? Like what? What were they? Do you, I haven't worked much with containers. Full disclosure, um, I kind of went with from doing things on EC2, and then we kind of jumped straight into serverless. So I kind of like I haven't done much with containers. I've worked with Docker, yada yada yada. But just like, what were people doing before Kubernetes was around? I mean, I know what I was doing. Uh, it was, you know, uh, using 
eventually infrastructure as code, I should say. Before that, it was you know a lot of click ops, you know, where you you give a Word doc to an operations person to have them install some sort of a web server. You know, back in the day for me, it was a lot of web logic. You know, so you have the web server, and that's kind of your abstraction layer. And so you have to build everything within the confines of what that web server exposes. So if you want to use its built-in queues and caching and the way that it's going to handle uh, resource connections and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, so it's going to be very specific to what vendors you tied into and stuff like that. And so then when we went to containers eventually, it was around trying to avoid... Um, having to create dependencies or install dependencies on a specific virtual machine, you know, putting things onto hardware and instead having that ship as part of the artifact, um, which isn't quite into the or orchestration level of things yet, but I'll, I'll let Matt chime in. Yeah. I, to be honest, I wasn't using containers before Kubernetes. We were using instances and virtual machines and running virtual machines in a cluster. Um, People were just starting to use Heroku and uh, services like that to run a container. But, you know, that Kubernetes came out right at the right time as people started to really look at containers. And I think, I believe that it was the CNCF and Kubernetes and all of the tools around it that, that really enabled the containerization and the microservice movement to really happen in a, in a solid way. Um, and, and I mean, there's so much that's come out of the CNCF that today is just, you know, bread and butter tools for, for DevOps type workloads and environments. Right. Um, you know, and, and Kubernetes wouldn't be what it is without those components, right? Like etcd and, and core DNS, those are fundamental into how Kubernetes runs. And that's all came out of the CNCF, right? This is all past Google. I mean, yeah. not to say that Google didn't have their hands in it, but, you know, on top of that, you have, like, Prometheus and Grafana and all that, right? Those are all CNCF-type work or um, projects. Yeah, I went to KubeCon in Detroit this year, and, uh, like, it was, I was overwhelmed. Like, I had no idea the ecosystem for Kubernetes and what kind of tools are out there. It was it's pretty impressive, so. Oh, um, yeah. If, if you've never looked at the cloud-native landscape, uh, site right there's uh like over over 1100 cards uh or products on this landscape page right that you can see and it's all the various projects it's it's pretty impressive yeah okay so you know throwing out a lot of terms i do want to kind of keep this 101 and like talk about like can can you guys explain to me you know as if i'm a child what is kubernetes and why it's important and then also touch on like what is a container, you know? Like let's start with the basics. Can you guys can you guys dumb it down for me? Sure. sure. Yeah. <laughs> so so Kubernetes itself is several different binaries, several different independent components. They're all working together uh, with with several goals. Uh, one of them is orchestration, which I'll explain in a second. But it goes beyond that. Right. It's I would say ge generically what Kubernetes has now become is it's an abstraction layer on top of hardware. It can be used to control your cloud infrastructure through different add ons and such. It's, it can be used to reconcile things. But the 
I don't know, if you want to simplify Kubernetes to its smallest uh, functionality, the, the orchestration piece, as we keep saying, it's just a loop, right? It's just a, a loop that keeps checking on things. And so that orchestration comes down to, if I have some application that I want to have running, and I want to have this many copies of it, or I need it to be able to handle this type of throughput, uh, what Kubernetes will do is make sure that you have at least this many of this thing running. Or if you have rules that say, um, I need to be able to handle this many requests per second, you can actually have components that will manage automatically scaling out this thing. And that application is going to be in a container. And containers, you can kind of think of them as a, a very small virtual machine. That's not quite true because uh, a virtual machine can have its own kernel. You know, certain things around system space versus user space. Um, but if those are things that you generally don't care about, you can kind of gloss over that and ignore it and just treat it like it's a VM that has everything it needs to run. And so that's the container. Only uh, what yeah. it needs to run, I would say, right? Like the, yeah. the whole point of a container is it's, it's stripped down to the barest of essentials to make it run fast and lean and and have less security issues and all, all that stuff but it's the minimum the smallest little virtual machine that you can make is the is the goal is the idea yeah i recall then, go ahead finish your thought man oh and and so kubernetes i ultimately kubernetes has become a control um think of it like a control plane right so aws changed everything when they allowed us to say i want to run I want to run this virtual thing, right? I want to. I want a virtual machine. I want a virtual database. I want a. I want a virtual serverless function, right? You you tell that API what what you want, and it creates it in the back end. And you don't know how how it's created. You don't care how it's created. It gets created and it runs, right? Kubernetes does the same kind of thing at this point, except for for containers. And but then it goes beyond containers to into jobs and uh, and now we're getting into the point to the point where Kubernetes becomes it you can spin up cloud resources with it right if you want that database you can say give me a database and Kubernetes will create it for you right and then it it helps manage it and helps it's got rules around how that stands up and how it does a rolling update and all of that stuff but ultimately you tell it what you want and it creates it. And it's an abstraction layer that you can apply over and over again. So I can have my Kubernetes cluster running in AWS, or I can have it running in Azure, and they both fundamentally run the same thing, right? I can reapply my same configuration file to either, and it'll kind of give me what I want. And that's the goal. Yeah, That's kind of how I see you're, it. You're kind of describing like infrastructure as code. Where would you kind of define the, the differences, the boundaries? Between what? Versus what Kubernetes is versus what Terraform is. Right, you're kind of, right. Yeah. So they kind of both do some of the same sort of things, right? And you're, I'm, we're talking about different tools in there. So for instance, you can use Terraform, which is an executable where you feed it a an opinionated statement of what you want, and Terraform goes and creates the things, right? Kubernetes, you can get to work the same way with with a specific 
with this specific CRD or, or um, a platform, right, or a tool, you add in crossplane is what I'm talking about there, and um, and you can tell Kubernetes, hey, I want this thing, and it will go build it, right? And fundamentally, in that case, uh, Kubernetes is actually running Terraform on the back end, strangely enough. But um, the the point is more of how you state what you want, right? I want X, Y, and Z, and it gives it to you. And that's the goal, right? Yeah. What yeah, Terraform would... won't do is it won't run your containers for you, right? It won't stand up that cluster and run it and keep everything running and do a rolling update. Terraform will build infrastructure and kind of you, you can write some sort of pseudo orchestration there, but Kubernetes kind of does all that for you. Yeah, does that make and I would sense? also add in that um, you know with Terraform, you're typically going to be very specific with the resources you want uh, around the sizing, you know the the SKUs that you're going to use or the compute instance types and all that. Uh, whereas because Kubernetes is abstracting some of that away. You know, like Matt mentioned, you know, crossplane is a very popular or at least commonly used uh, infrastructure management component that you can add into Kubernetes. Um, but you're also yeah. going to be able to, beyond just saying, I need, you know, an EC2 instance that's, you know, this extra large, whatever. Instead, you can kind of describe what type of workload you're going to have and have it be more reactive and kind of make some of those decisions just in time for you. Uh, around scaling things. And so you're going to get that because it's managing multiple sets of resources. You know, you've got your control plane, you've got all your worker nodes that, you know, ultimately are different VMs, right? It's able to do some bin packing across some different stuff to be able to optimize hardware and be able to react to the shape of the, the work that's coming in at that moment. Interesting. Um, I think you touched on a few things there, uh, Brendan and Matt, and I, I want to give the listeners like kind of a rundown of the various components of a Kubernetes cluster. So I think it would be helpful because there's, I got a list. I don't know if it's definitive, but I want to, you know, read off what I've got and then you guys can fill in the gaps. And we've, we've touched on it a few times already, but, you know, first component on my list is control plane. What is it? What's it do? And, uh, maybe we'll just take turns. Maybe Brandon, you take the first one and then Matt, you take the next one here. Yeah. Yeah. And the control plane is actually, you can break it down into a few different components, right? So your control plane, first and foremost, you've got your API controller, you know, you've got your uh, Kubernetes API server, and that's, you know, how you interact with Kubernetes. You know, everything is API calls. So if you use Cube control or Cube cuddle or Cube ectal, however you want to pronounce the thing, uh, it's one of the most, uh, We'll say diversely pronounced tools in, that I've ever encountered. Um, but whenever you're doing those things, you're interacting with the API server. Um, mm -hmm. And then that API server is going to rely a lot on the state of the cluster or the you know the desired state, which it is going to store in etcd. So etcd is a key value store. Um, it's the most common store for Kubernetes. But uh, I know for a while there, uh, certain other things we're using, like SQLite, um, other things to store state. But I think now, as of 1.19, I think you have to use etcd. It's kind of a, a core component of Kubernetes. So some of these answers depend on which version you're talking about, I guess. Right. But, and then well, you've got... 
Oh, I'm sorry, say, go ahead. You, kind of, you went through the first three, control plane, API server, etcd, um, yeah. and then, you know, Matt, why don't you talk to us about, if it makes sense, is scheduler is the next on my list. Um, yeah, so the scheduler is the part of the, the cluster that will um, tell the nodes, or the, sorry, not the nodes, the containers where to run and when to run. So it looks at the their various nodes and says, "Oh, there's room on this on this server. Go run your container there, or you know, if or not." And there you can set rules when you define things so that like you can say, "Run run these containers together, or run them separately, or you know, however." There's all sorts of ways you can set that up. The scheduler takes all that information and figures out where to run the workloads across. The okay, network. and we'll go back to Matt. Uh, controller manager. The controller manager? That's something um, that rings a bell. I mean, I, I, my understanding of it is that that just kind of manages all of these various pieces together. Yeah, I think it's, it ensures that the de desired state of the cluster matches the actual state. Yeah, yeah. What, yeah, and yeah those controllers are just those loops that I was talking about before. Every controller you put into Kubernetes it's just a reconciliation loop that just runs forever. Right. Now let me let me say this: when you start, when you first get started in Kubernetes, you don't actually have to deal with really any of these things. They kind of run in the background, right? You mm -hmm. interact through, say, kubectl. That's how I pronounce it. Um, you you use kubectl, which is a command line CLI based tool, to interact through the API, but you're not actually doing api calls you're just running cli commands and it sure. kind of handles all that stuff in the background right I, I i put my manifest file my I, it's a yaml file and say give me x y or z and it just kind of orchestrates everything in the background and gives me what i just asked for, right and yeah. that's that's kind of the beauty of it is it is it kind of hand it handles it all as one one system it's an opinionated system but it's extensible and changeable and mutable right yeah well, thanks for go. clarifying that because yeah as someone who hasn't worked with it kubernetes like i see this long list of components and it's kind of intimidating right but like you're right. saying you, you don't have to really so just to round out the the rest of my components you guys have used the word nodes um nodes is basically it's the worker machines it's right. a it's a server on which your containers are going to run. Okay. And yeah, then, you're going to have yeah. the kubelet and the kube proxy. That's what makes a node. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Kubelet was next on my list. Um, yeah. So that is that like a agent that runs on each node? Yep. And yeah. then your nodes actually host all your containers, is what you're saying. Yeah. Right. So the kubelet tells the node, these are the containers I need to have running. I need to start these things. I need to keep them health i need to make sure they're in a healthy state if they're not i need to report back that something's wrong you know it keeps crashing whatever and then you've got the cube proxy which is all about how do these things talk to each other because everything yeah. is you know there's tons there's networks upon networks upon networks using load balancing in front of load balancing in front of load balancing mm -hmm. you know it's a lot of uh, network layer shenanigans going on in order to make sure these things can communicate with each other and then the last thing on my list, rounding out the components, is the container runtime, which basically looks like there's some different options you can use. For yeah. Well, like there's 
there was two. There was Docker and there was Container D. There might be a few others, but in the most recent version of Kubernetes, it's all Container D. Okay. The other yeah, one you... I had listed was called CRI-O, which I've never yeah, heard of. Cryo. I've heard of Docker and Container D. Yeah, Cryo is just a slightly different way of doing things. Um, yeah. Container D is going to be the the easiest to use. It's what comes by default, you know, with a lot of uh, setups that you would use. It's also what Docker uses behind the scenes. So if you're using Docker desktop at the actual runtime level, it's using container D, you know, it's all okay. that. Oh yeah. For um, just for the record, we just upgraded four clusters in the past month and went from running container D uh, sorry, went from running Docker to Container D, and there was no issue. It ju we just upgraded it. It happened. You wouldn't even know it happened. We it's didn't good, have yeah. to rebuild anything. We didn't have to change anything. It just all, it just all worked. Just a slight difference on the back end. Yeah, the the only difference that I ever noticed was the types of tools. If you really got down to the point where. Uh, container, you, you suspected an issue with the container runtime and you needed to diagnose that directly on one of the nodes. That's where the runtime makes a difference because it changes the tooling you're going to use. But mm -hmm. honestly, if you're at that point, uh, you've got a lot of other problems and it's definitely well beyond a 101. Yeah, yeah. I <laughs> ran into one issue with it once that has been solved, but it was that that was a deep thing. It was. It sounds like a, a deep rabbit hole. Yeah, it wasn't a big. Um, so, Matt, you, you kind of touched on this when we were going through the components about how a lot of these components aren't really things you're wrenching on or having to deal with. Um, so, I think that's a good transition to like, so what's the learning curve like for Kubernetes? Is it difficult to work with? Is it, you know, just talk about the learning curve and then, yeah, let me know your thoughts on it. Yeah. So, the learning curve. So I don't. I personally don't think that it's terribly hard to learn. Um, as a matter of fact, I have. We have uh, several uh, brand new junior devs who have, you know, started their first job eight months ago with us, and they are learning Kubernetes right now. And how we have them doing it is they're just going through the tutorial stuff on the Kubernetes website. It's it's a pretty great resource. Um, and it gets you kind of all these components, all the things you can put in your YAML file to to build out what you want. Um, interacting with the cluster is pretty simple. It's a CLI tool that you, you know, largely you either tell it what to do or you point it at a YAML file and the YAML file tells it what to do, you know, tells it what you want rather, not what to do, but you state what you want. Now. There is some complexity because things link together, right? So you can't just run a pod or a, a container um, and expect it, you know, with a website on it and be able to get to it. You also have to build a service and the service has to connect to an ingress. And so the, there's sometimes you get these chains of things that connect that need to connect together. But once you've kind of learned how the various kubernetes components linked together it's really pretty straightforward um so i wouldn't say there's no learning curve there definitely is some as you as you work that out but there's there are great resources out there there's great tutorials and there are 
tons and tons of experts on Kubernetes because, as you say, it, it's pretty popular. Great, great answer, Matt. Anything to add to that, Brennan, in terms of the learning curve or the challenges of, of getting yeah. up to speed with Kubernetes? Yeah, and you know, as I mentioned, my kind of first foray into Kubernetes was as a platform engineer. So it was all about uh, looking at this complex thing and then adding abstractions on top of it. You know, and so when you ask how easy is it to get started or what's the learning curve, you know, it's kind of like my my children don't need to understand anything about, you know, a von Neumann architecture or how RAM works or what type of CPU I have to be able to play a game, right? So it's about what what abstractions are available and what is the the goal that you have. So for my kids, the abstraction is there's a link that they, you know, a shortcut on the desktop, they double click that, the game starts and they're good to go. They don't need to know any of the complexity below that point. And I think it can be similar with Kubernetes. Um, the way that that I was doing it as a platform engineer is the individual developers, they had to know how do I manage my container? And so if they could run it in Docker locally, they could be pretty assured that it would be able to run in Kubernetes. Now, in order to make that a smooth trans transition, as the platform team, we had to make a lot of decisions around, okay, you know, Matt mentioned, you know, you've got a service, right? We had to make decisions about are we what type of service are we going to use? Are we going to use cluster IP versus a load balancer versus node port? And those are all kind of just different ways of connecting into a thing. And then that service is going to set in front of some deployments, right? Or it could be that instead of a deployment, you're using a daemon set, or instead of those, you're using a stateful set. And that's going to depend on the type of workload you have. And those are kind of more one-time decisions. But once you once somebody has made that decision or made that decision for you, it's then very easy to keep that flow going, to keep it, you know, to update that image. You know, for example, let's so let's just pick a scenario just to make it easier to, to conceptualize. So if you have an ingress controller, so you know, you've got this thing running in your cluster where if I give it this host name and this path it's going to route to this service. And you, you've decided that service is going to run as a cluster IP, and it's going to point to your deployment, which has a replica set with these pods. Right? That was one time set up to make that all work. But now, if you want to add a new environment variable, well, that's just an update to the YAML representing that deployment. You want to change the version of that image, You know, the tag of the image that's going to be deployed. Again, that's just updating the YAML for the deployment. From that point forward, Kubernetes is just going to reconcile that and make it just magically work. You know, and there should be no reason that it would behave any different, you know, from the previous version to, to this version, other than those few things that you've tweaked. So there's a lot of one-time decisions that need to be made, but you definitely don't need to understand the nuance of every single possibility in order to make things continue working once they're initially set up. Yeah. Based on, you know, as you were talking, one of the things I want to point out with learning, you're we were talking about learning curve. There is a lot of terms and the nuance between, you know, the difference between a deployment, a daemon set, a stateful set, and a replica set, and how those all interact, that that's part of the difficulty, right? We throw out all these terms or acronyms and you just got that's stuff you gotta learn. 
Yeah, it's it's like that with everything though. You know, I work I work yeah. a lot with AWS CDK, right? And there's just a lot to like. It's easy, right? But then if you once you kind of dive into it and see like all the different methods, all the properties, all the different constructs. Yeah. I mean, there's like hundreds of them. So yeah, I get it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So um, I want to be respectful of your guys' time. We did get a bit of a late start. Uh, also, welcome to the show, Tom. Thanks for for joining. Um, Howdy. I guess you know. I wanted to wrap up with like, do you have like, is there, is there best practices that you guys want could share to the audience? Because um, I know Kubernetes is like a broad thing, but like, if there's some mm-hmm. best practices that you think are worth like noting when you're managing or uh, building a cluster, like, please share them, and then we'll yeah. we'll wrap up the show and let you get guys get back to work. Yeah, sure. I've got I've got like my biggest pet peeve. Uh, you know, kind of like we talked about how you can get going with Kubernetes really easily, right? There, if if somebody else has done the the paving of the road for you, you can drive down that lane super easy. But then what I've found is people start to understand more and then they try to overdo things. And so number one, like most abused thing I've seen is the readiness and liveness probes. So these are things you can build into your container for Kubernetes to know if it's still healthy or if it's ready to serve traffic. And I think the worst sin that I've seen is where people try to have their uh, readiness probe do too many health checks. So for example, if you have a web server, you know, you've got a, you know, an Nginx container that's running to show a website and then that you know, relies on some API servers to make certain calls. And then it's got a database that it knows that these API servers are going to call. If that Nginx container is doing a readiness check or or maybe even worse, a liveness check that makes sure that all those things are up and running before it actually starts running itself, that can be a big problem. Because um, especially if you have kind of circular dependencies in there, what you'll end up with is one little hiccup on one little service can cause a cascading failure where all of a sudden everything thinks that they're in a healthy, in an unhealthy state. Mm-hmm. So my best practice there would be, you know, instead of having your container try to be worried about all these other things and representing its own health based on that, instead build resilience into the application itself so that it can run, but, you know, give useful errors like, Hey, I am running. I am here for you, but I couldn't do that thing you asked me to do because at this moment, you know, this API isn't responding, you know. Right. So build, build more intelligence into your application rather than trying to force Kubernetes to do things. I've definitely been in scenarios like that, um, <laughs> even on EC2, where it's just like um, the instance is trying to make sure it can connect to the database, right? And if mm-hmm. there's something, if there's a problem connecting to the database, all of a sudden all the instances think they're unhealthy. And so they all terminate themselves, right? So it's just like, well, yeah, there's that balance of like a proper health check. Um, so uh, how about you, Matt? Any best practices you want to share? And we can come back to you, Brandon, if you had some more. But uh, anything on sure. your mind, Brandon or Matt? So one of the things I love about Kubernetes is it allows you to really implement things like GitOps in, uh, in a really pretty simple way, right? Because everything's just a YAML file at the end of the day that gets applied. There's a number of tools to do it, and you maintain a Git repo in, of your stated intention, and the tools will reconcile the two. That's, I think, super important to 
no, you know, for recoverability, if nothing else. So I, I can throw, I could throw my clusters away right now, just completely delete them and have everything back up and running in an hour or so because I maintain what I want in a Git repo. Um, so I, re I absolutely 100% recommend looking at GitOps-based tools so that you can do that. That's, that's really an empowering thing. Yeah, thanks for sharing that one. Anything else yeah, you guys want to throw out there? Sure. I, I wanted to tag on to uh, what Matt just said, but also tying it back into something that Tom had brought up earlier is, you know, when you have that GitOps tooling, you know, let's say Argo CD or Flux, something running inside of Kubernetes, uh, one one thing that it can do beyond Terraform or other tools is Terraform tends to be a you know, let's say CI/CD tool initiated thing. So it's part of a workflow where it's kind of a one-time thing. Whereas Kubernetes can actually reconcile that and keep things in the right state over time. So even if somebody goes in and maliciously or unintentionally changes something, it can switch things back. So that's, you know, one of the additional things that you can have from Kubernetes. Um, but then as far as another uh, best practice, uh, I'm actually going to sneak two in. Uh, one would be making sure that you understand that if you have persistence, that you're using the right resources. And so within Kubernetes, that means you're using something like a persistent volume. So if you have this persistent volume, which could be you know tied to some NFS or something like that, so some sort of persistent storage, you need to make sure you're using a stateful set, not a deployment. Um, and that's just something, you know, if you think that's a situation that you're in, you know, you should go look into that a little bit to understand it, but it affects how Kubernetes can do its updates, right? It tries to do zero downtime deployments. Um, if you have a deployment resource with a persistent volume and you tell it to update, it can get stuck indefinitely and you have to go out and manually delete your replica set to have it actually be able to bring up the new resources. Um, so that's, so that's one thing. And then kind of similarly related where you can get yourself stuck uh, with resources not getting scheduled correctly is if you try to take over the uh, anti-affinity rules too much. So if you try to do too much around uh, what's called taints and tolerations, so this is where you're saying this, this container or this pod can only run on these nodes or it needs to run, you know, these things need to be separated so they don't all run on the same node. If you do too much with that, you can end up in situations where you may be trying to do a cluster upgrade. For example, you want to switch to a new version of Kubernetes and you're upgrading nodes and all of a sudden things that would normally be able to, you know, for a period of time, run on the same nodes so that they all get kind of get shifted over to one while a new one's coming up and then they get spread out again, stuff like that you can end up with it just not working right. And that's, yeah. I think of that as being similar to uh, people who use compiler hints too much with SQL queries. You know, you're, you're saying you know better than the optimizer. You know better than the tools that are built to do this, which may be true sometimes, but you'd better be certain that you're, you're right about that if you're going to force it to do that. Yeah, so, it sounds like you just... Uh easy to over make it over overly complex introduce yeah. unnecessary complication just like with any yeah. system if you if you know try to keep it as simple 
as you can. Yeah, try to let the tools work for you. You know, try to let them work for you as much as they can. And if you find that you're having issues, you know, resource contention, you know, certain speed issues or whatever, then maybe step in and nudge things in the right direction. Okay. Um, Time check. You guys got a couple extra minutes because I did did a couple questions. I wanted to just kind of... Okay, great. Um, And I know, Tom, you'll probably want to chime in on some of these where it's just like, what are the what are scenarios where do you believe there's cases where customers or organizations shouldn't use Kubernetes? Especially yeah. in the case of something new, right? You're building a new service, new application. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely there are situations, right? So and it's gonna depend on your your context, right? So if if somebody were to come to me and say, Hey, we are a dot net shop, we are running in Azure. Um, we don't really have concern about cost or anything like that. As long as things are are reasonable, uh, should we use Kubernetes? I would probably say no. Um, if they're just running their own applications, um, because there's already like Azure App Services, which are very simple to use, and they do a lot of the things from a you know kind of like that developer perspective. Azure App Services do the same things for you without the complexity and number of things that could potentially break that Kubernetes has. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you want to, for example, have complete network control and you want to have all your databases and you know your event, your your message bus type things, you know your, all your. Uh, event-driven architecture, everything all within the same network space where you have complete tight control around it, well, then using Helm charts to deploy all these things within Kubernetes could be you know, an, an easier way to have that level of control. But if you don't need that, yeah, it'd be hard to convince somebody that they need all the components of Kubernetes um, just to run their application. So yeah, Matt, I, if you could follow up on that, I'm really curious to know what led your organization's decision to go from ECS to EKS, if you could touch on that, because I think that's an interesting oh. uh, scenario. Yeah, yeah. So when when we started, when I started, we were running on ECS, and to be able to get in and troubleshoot what was happening in, in a container, um, you they had to SSH into the ECS node, and then connect from the, you know, using the Docker command line and then get to the logs. Um, and it, it was like a, this triple jump kind of scenario in order to really look inside what was going on in that container. Um, on top of that, there was, they had made some choices like um, they were running multiple threads in each of those containers. And so knowing like what each thread was kind of doing was a little tricky. So what e- what Kubernetes allowed us to do was kind of break that up and each con- now nowadays each container runs one thread and if it's having a problem like if, if it's using a lot of ram it's only that one thread that we can deal with and you know we can see it at a much more granular level. And we get all of the logs and we get all of the events out of those containers automatically slurped up into Datadog um or Prometheus, whichever way you want to go, and and we can kind of we have more visibility. It's easier to connect to a container through Kubernetes, and like we can get a shell if we want to, or get the logs for each of those containers in a much 
cleaner and easier way. Um, but beyond that, as we move more and more into a microservice type architecture where we build a service as a as its own container, Kubernetes has enabled us to move a lot faster on that. We don't have to sort out how to stand up all the ECS stuff um, around each of those little microservices. We just have extra room on our cluster and you know it on our dev cluster in particular you know it's not always highly a bit or highly in use right it's not those nodes are have plenty of extra space so we can run little containers around the main container that um because kubernetes allows us to do that right yeah. um and that's that's a that's a pretty powerful thing right it, it really has allowed us to move a lot faster and to stand up things just to try it out, right? We don't have to worry about all of the infrastructure around that, all the networking around that. We just tell Kubernetes, hey, run this container, and it'll do it for us. Okay. Um, so the follow-up question I have for you guys is, I think when I researched for, for the podcast, it's like you always hear Kubernetes is... Um, you know, you can avoid vendor lock-in, right? Because you can run Kubernetes and, you know, sure. you can run it on VMware, you can run it in AWS, you can run it in Google. Is that, is is vendor lock-in and like being, I see a lot of advantage of like leveraging AWS services because they all, the integration between all the various AWS services makes it easier for me to deploy things, right? Um, and it sounds like Kubernetes, once you get it up and running, is very similar. Like once you have it up, you can you can do a lot of neat things with it. But do you, have you guys experienced like multi-cloud environments that are actually doing things in multi-cloud with Kubernetes, or is that just more of a? I've just never actually talked to someone who's like, yeah, we yeah. use Kubernetes because we're running thirty percent of our workload in the Google Cloud and the other fifty percent in Azure and then twenty percent in AWS. Like I just don't. It doesn't. Yeah. So. The most recent state of DevOps report uh, from out of Dora was the first time that I heard them talk about multi-cloud as a strategy to leverage the benefits of each cloud, right? So it's not necessarily a homogenous workload across them, um, but it's more, oh, I want to use this database out of Google and I want to use this application gateway out of Azure, and I want to use the compute instances out of AWS, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas I think it used to be this imagined scenario where you were all of a sudden going to go in and strong arm your cloud provider and be like, hey, if you don't give me a better deal, I'm leaving. I'm going over here and I can do it because I've got all this completely neutral stuff. And one, like most of the most of the customers of any of the cloud providers, they aren't going to have enough leverage to be able to have that type of argument stick. And two, if you're doing that, you're probably missing out on some of the uh, benefits enabled by that certain cloud, you know, yeah. be it a specific type of message queue or database or backup solution, you know, whatever it is. If you're trying to stay completely vendor neutral, uh, that's going to be, you're going to miss out on some possible benefits there. But there is there is a lot of benefit with Kubernetes, not so much in the multi-cloud, um, so much as multiple uh, infrastructures or multiple targets, because you can run Kubernetes locally very, very easily, okay. right? Whereas oh, yeah. some of the cloud-based orchestration tools um, beyond 
Kubernetes uh, might be a little bit more difficult to run locally. Yeah. I'll say, um, you know, for a little while there, I worked at a company that was looking to run all their software on Kubernetes because it enabled easy upgrade um, at a remote site. So it didn't matter what, you know, my, our client, what, you know, didn't matter what they were running. If they were running in a, in a cloud environment, if they were running in a local environment, the hardware, none of that mattered because all we had to deal with was the Kubernetes aspect of it and package it so it ran in a Kubernetes cluster and then bundle that up and ship it out and they just would it would run in Kubernetes because Kubernetes is Kubernetes, right? Yeah. Um, and that that was a great uh, great example of where where it created an even playing field right it 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 created that abstraction layer that you that separated you from that underlying infrastructure i think that kind of um call back to what you said in the beginning of the show matt where it's like the um the cn the cloud foundation cncf if you look at it they've got 1100 things that all work with kubernetes right so if you're if you're like an isv and you want to build something and it runs on Kubernetes, right? I mean, you you just kind of gain that benefit of like, it can run, yeah, Kubernetes, yeah, Google running Azure, running running AWS. If as long as it runs in Kubernetes and you got a Helm chart that you know helps you spin it up, like you're golden. Yeah, and that's my my long term goal is that everything we do will run in Kubernetes, so that we could we have that option. We have the option. It, you know, we're not stuck in AWS because I've I've worked at a place where we had a a client tell us they didn't want us to use AWS as our infrastructure yeah, because they were their competitor, right? Mm -hmm. Well, you're stuck if your whole solution is based on uh, S3 and RDS, right? Yeah. I mean, RDS, sure, you could run your database somewhere else, but what if it's Lambda functions, right? So getting everything so it runs in Kubernetes well, it would allow you to move between clouds, not because I care, but because my client might care. And if I'm selling my software to them, I want to be able to run in whatever they're comfortable running in. And if that's a local machine or, a, you know, a VMware cluster or Azure or Alibaba, as long as it's got Kubernetes running, we can run inside of it. That would be a pretty powerful way to be. We're not there, but that's my kind of long-term vision, if you will, what I'm trying to work towards. DevOps Supreme has spoken. There you go. <laughs> well, guys, uh, thanks uh, for giving us some extra time here. It's a really interesting topic. You guys are super knowledgeable. Um, really appreciate you taking time out of your busy days to come sit and talk to Tom and I. Um, Thank hope you. our listeners, you found the conversation informative and valuable. And uh, we'd love everyone to come back next week for uh, next episode where we're going to be talking about an interesting topic that has not yet been decided upon. <laughs> hey, if uh, anybody has questions uh, about Kubernetes or just wants to talk more about it, um, they should join the discord server and yes, speak yeah. up because I hang out there and willing to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. The intro to our show has a little, uh, you know, lets the users listeners know about the link to join the server. So yeah, these experts are in our discord server excited to talk about kubernetes so please join and uh we'd love to have you guys back again uh to talk about uh advanced kubernetes topics yeah absolutely. yeah <laughs> take care guys have a good one yeah